Hey, have you heard about our all-new free PDF that you can download? It's called Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. And if you're a couple that has done the date nights and attended the relationship retreats and learned the communication skills, read the latest books on marriage, but you still find yourself stuck in a loop of pain and frustration, then this PDF is for you. If one moment everything is fine and the next moment everything feels crazy and that is familiar, I encourage you to go to restoringthesoul.com, scroll down, fill in your email, and get the free copy of our all-new PDF, Five Ways Unresolved Trauma May Be Derailing Your Relationship. You're going to find it very helpful. Most people feel like they read this and they wonder if we've been reading their mail. They say, this is us. It's going to be of help. Check it out now at restoringthesoul.com. Questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Welcome to Restoring the Soul. I'm Michael John Cusick, and this is the podcast that helps you close the gap between what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show today. It is part two of my conversation with Dr. C. Baxter Kruger. And in this part of the conversation, we discuss a number of topics, such as uh, the global great awakening that Baxter sees happening as he travels and teaches around the world. We'll be discussing the idea of the Trinity and the meaning of this word perichoresis, which is Baxter's website, perichoresis.org. And then finally, we'll be talking about what the evangelical church misses in regard to the Trinity and what the everyday implications of that are. So Baxter has written eight books, including Jesus and the Undoing of Adam, The Great Dance, The Christian Vision Revisited, and the best-selling book, The Shack Revisited. Baxter is the director of Perichoresis Ministries. He teaches around the world, and he earned his Ph.D. from King's College, Aberdeen, Scotland, He's also an avid outdoorsman and the founder and president of Mediator Lures. He holds two United States patents for his fishing lure designs. And in this episode, as we talk about at the end, uh, I want to make sure that you have the information for uh, Baxter's website. It is perichoresis.org, P-E-R-I-C-H-O-R-E-S-I-S perichoresis.org. And that website, I've checked it out and I've spent some time there. There are uh, hundreds of resources there, videos, downloadable books, PDFs, blog posts. It's very worthwhile to check out your time, especially if you've been intrigued by this interview. So join me now as we jump into part two of my conversation with Baxter Kruger. What does the evangelical church misunderstand or not even see about the Trinity? Well, I think we all confess it on Sunday mornings for the most part. I think that there is an, a rampant deism, separation, and a rampant uh, Arianism in what ca is called modern evangelical theology or the modern evangelical church. I mean, we can read, and this is back to the veil, we can read John 1 to 3, and, and it says all things came into being through Jesus. And John repeats himself because he knows what the darkness is. 
all things came into being through Jesus. And apart from him, not one thing came into being that came into being. So if that's true, if John is right, then why are we running around the world telling people they're separated from Jesus Christ? So that's the veil. That's the darkness. And, and it's so thick. And this is so typical of darkness. It's so thick. It's like, well, we can't be that wrong. Well, that's what John is telling us. That's what. Well, and it even it even changes one's interpretation of the veil being torn in two when Jesus gave up His Spirit, where instead of that being about separation from God, it's about the veil is keeping us from seeing God accurately. Is that what you would say? It's exactly what it is, and it's it's torn from the top down, not from the bottom up. This is God. This is the Father, Son, and Spirit saying saying, we're going to create, they're going to fall, we're going to go inside and get them, and we're going to bring them to their senses so they can see who we are. And you got the prodigal son reaction to the father, and you got the uh, religious son's reaction. And the religious son in Luke 15 is standing out there when his father goes uh, lavish with all these gifts for his wayward son who's wasted his life uh, with uh, harlots and wine, wine, etc., and the older son's the religious son who has been working, and he says to the father, he says, look, I have never neglected a single command of yours. And yet when this son of yours, quote unquote, comes home from the far country and the whole town knows what he's been doing, you go all out with a feast and you put your ring on him and your robe and your sandals on his feet. And he's saying, that's not fair. You've never, father, you've never given me uh, a lamb that I could make merry with my friends. This is totally unfair. And But if you read the story of Luke 15, the younger son comes to the father, and the story says, so the father divided his wealth between them. So here the older son is working his finger to the bone for his dad while he is, in fact, the owner of the entire estate. And he's angry with his dad because his dad won't play by his rules and reward him by throwing a feast for his own friends. Now, that's what blindness is. That is the definition of it right there. You're right in the middle of something, and yet you can't see it, so you invent something you can see and work the program and expect everybody to line up. And most of us do line up, and after we all crash and burn, nobody knows what to do. And that's when the Great Awakening is happening, that's, and that's what's going on now. So the first that you asked me about the Trinity, the first thing to be said about the Trinity that's critical is that the Father, Son, and Spirit dwell in one another without loss of personality or without loss of personhood. And that's what we're all after in our marriages. We want to dwell in oneness without losing ourselves. One of us has to become a doormat. And once you see that vision of the Trinity, then you place Trinity first. And creation flows out of the life of the Father, Son, and Spirit, which is exactly what the Nicene Creed did. Nicene Creed begins this way. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in one, the next paragraph, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, that's taking, they're saying, we stand with, the, with Israel of old. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But we now know that the one God has three persons. But notice what it says in the, first, in the very first statement. It does not say, we believe in one God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. It says, we believe in one God, the Father. It's placing, it's placing the almightiness and the creation of the cosmos in the context of fatherhood, which is the fatherhood of the Son in the Holy Spirit. So the Trinity is the womb and the logic of creation. That's what we've lost. 
we've we've got a picture in evangelicalism where God creates the heaven and earth. Adam and Eve botched it, and God's been um, infinitely angry ever since. And then finally, Jesus comes and does something to calm him down. No, no, we were created by the Trinity for the Trinity. We rebelled. The Father, Son, and Spirit said no. Now we're going to go in and, and bring reconciliation, and so that creation can be filled with the other-centered, self-giving, abounding life and holiness and joy and blessedness of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The church is called to bear witness to this. It's, it's called to bear witness to what is true for everybody, but we cannot see. So there's a back and forth that, with that understanding of God and the Trinity, that that changes our perspective about humanity, which in evangelical theology, you know, we are utterly depraved, our hearts are desperately wicked, and, um, you know, that we have worm theology, and that, that affects how we live. Yeah, well, I had a friend tell me he was sick and tired of asphalt theology, and I said, what in the world are you talking about? He said, Jesus took an ass whooping, and it was our fault. And I said, that the grossest thing I've ever heard in my life, the thought that the father would turn his back on his son or punish him. You see, the, the penal substitutionary theory of atonement is, is a very modern thing. This is not the early church at all. It never crossed their mind. It never crossed the apostles' mind. But this idea that the father poured out his wrath upon, he placed our guilt upon Jesus and poured out his wrath upon Jesus and abandoned him. What's the Holy Spirit doing at that moment? Is the Holy Spirit siding with the father or is the Holy Spirit siding with the son? But the truth is, the, where was God when Jesus was on the cross? Paul answers it. God was in Christ, reconciling the cosmos to himself. John answers it. Jesus, John 16, the hour has come, disciples, where each of you are going to depart and leave me alone. Each of you go into your own homes. But I am not alone, for the Father is with me, meta, united with me. Because there's an indivisibility about our relationship. You never have Jesus without the Holy Spirit and the Father. You never have the Holy Spirit without Jesus and the Father, et cetera, et cetera. That, that, that oneness. So the real picture is how the, the Trinitarian oneness finds its way inside this impossible world where we have run and we hide from God. And that's what the cross is about. And it's all set out in, John, in, in, in John's gospel beautifully. So, Baxter, what is what is sin? You speak of sin, especially in Jesus and the Undoing of Adam, which is a, a book that probably more than any other book I own is marked up and dog-eared. But you speak of sin as an organic problem. Will you comment on that? Yeah, I will. I, and I, I, that was written a few years ago, too, and I would put, I would put it this way. Sin, I, I was taught in the in Westminster uh, tradition that sin is any want, want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And here's my definition of sin now. Jesus, you're wrong about God, the Father. You're wrong about the Holy Spirit. You're wrong about me, and you're wrong about your enemies. So I want you to change the way you think, Jesus. Repent and believe in me and in the way I think. So sin is our fighting Jesus and telling him he's wrong and we're right. And that then creates fear, et cetera, inside of us. And so it's not in the first instance a moral issue, although it leads to all kinds of bizarre activity. Um, but it is for, in the first instance about the corruption of our perception so that we think we're right, but in fact we're dead wrong. And Jesus has entered into that, and he bore it. 
He bore our sin. That's what Isaiah was saying is that the, the Lord caused the iniquity, the rejection of us toward Jesus. We, our rejection of Jesus, Jesus bore that. And that's the way he got inside of it. He bore the scorn of our enlightenment. So um, to put it in another way, if I, if I, if I took that, that Calvinist definition of sin, uh, any, sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God, you could say it this way. Sin is any lack of conformity unto or transgression of uh, reality in Jesus Christ. So it's not a moral issue. It's a relational issue. Fundamentally, a relational issue which carries all kinds of moral implications, but it's not fundamentally a moral issue, which may or may not affect your relationships. I want to go back to the very start of our conversation when you talked about our participation in the Trinity. And I heard a speaker share a story about you on an airplane where you met a man. And the story was so compelling um, where I don't think he was a believer. And you just kind of explained to him what you just have talked about in this interview. Will you tell that story? Oh yeah, this I, I was. This is twenty years ago, I think, maybe longer. But I was, I was flying from Dallas out west somewhere, and at that point in my life, I'd never seen the Rocky Mountains, so I booked a window seat. And so we get on the plane, and every the middle seat on both sides are completely empty, so everybody's got space. And, and we back out, and it stops, and we back forward, and they open the the, uh, the, the door back up, and in walks this man. Uh, he looks like Indiana Jones. Uh, he's got a leather hat, leather satchel, and a backpack. And he's walking. I'm sitting on row 28. He walks all the way past all those empty seats and sits down beside me. And there was a young lady on the other side. And he introduced himself as a systematic microevolutionary biologist. And he had just coming home, coming home from a, a month-long uh, tour of uh, the Caribbean where he was researching plants. So he pulls out his napkins and he starts telling us about plants and he's got the Latin names and he's all concerned about that the, the some of them, some whole species are becoming extinct. And he had a list on the left of all the ones that were extinct that we knew about. These are becoming extinct and he outlined plans about what to do about it. And so I told him I was a theologian somewhere in the conversation and, and we, we passed the Rocky Mountains and somewhere over on the eastern, I mean the western part of the country, he looks at me and he says, so Baxter, he says, I suppose being a theologian, you you want to uh, talk to me about evolution. And I said, I said, no, I said, I, I don't really care about evolution, but I do have a question. And he said, well, what's your question? And I said, well, my question to you is where did you get your passion for plants? So you're a grown man. You know their Latin names. You've outlined for us ways in which we can keep whole species from becoming extinct, what we must do, how to go about doing it. So did you grow up around botanists? Did you just wake up one day and take a good botany pill? <laughs> I mean, was your mom a botanist? I mean, how did this come from it? And we looked at each other at the same time and said, it probably just evolved and laughed. And I said, or, and I pull out my napkin and I draw my Trinitarian circles and I put Father in one circle and Son and Holy Spirit. I said, I know the origin of your passion for plants. There's only one circle that cares about creation. Knows every bird and every hair on every human head. And I know who you are. Jesus, the Father, Son, and Spirit are sharing their passion for their creation with you. In your case, plants. They share it with you and you are absolutely thrilled with it to the point to where you've sacrificed a month of your life to go in the, in the humidity and the heat of the Caribbean and research. And I think it's beautiful. 
And this man looks at me and he says, I have never heard that. <laughs> if I had, he said, if that's true, why haven't I ever been told? And I said, you just were, you know, well, there it is. I can, when we begin to see what is, we begin to see this man and we validate him. And I can guarantee you when he got off that plane and his wife picked him up at the airport, they had a conversation about botany and Jesus that they had never had ever. And, um, and suppose that he decided, he and his wife decided that maybe they need to go to church. So they go and get involved in a local church. And after a couple of years, he starts realizing that he's kind of beginning to be sad a little bit and he can't figure it out. And then he realizes in time, hopefully, that what's happened to him is he got involved in the life of the church, which is, which is sacred sector dichotomy again. And they've gotten him more and more and more involved in the quote unquote spiritual thing and less and less involved in botany. And he just finally just says, I've got, I just can't do this. I've got to go back to my botany. And he thinks he's betrayed Jesus. Mm, wow. And that's where we are, brother. That's why everybody's exiting the building right there. Because we don't know how to tell the fireman or the botanist or the farmer or the garbage collector who they really are and what's really going on in their lives and, and restore the dignity of their participation. Because that's what they're doing. They're participating. And we, we had a and I asked him before he got off the plane, I said, you know, uh, I believe in the resurrection and I believe in the recreation. So I said, uh, who do you think is going to be the lead dog in protecting plants on planet Earth in the next life? He, he just looked up at me and grinned. Wow. I said, I think that would be you, brother. You and Jesus. Wow. And I'm not going to denigrate you and tell you all you are is a botanist. If you want to serve Jesus, you come over here with us and you pray at our prayer meeting or you do whatever. I'm not saying prayer and, and worship and all that's not part of it. It is. It's all of a piece. But there's no hierarchy here. It's about the presence, not the absence of Jesus. The, the recognition, the recognition of the sacred presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in every person moment and event is the beginning of wisdom. It is the beginning of seeing what is, what Jesus called in John eight twelve, the light of the world. I am the light of the cosmos. The one who follows me, that is the one who takes sides with me against the way they see, this one will never ever walk in the darkness, but shall experience the light of life. Wow. You... You mentioned that there's a great awakening happening, and of course, historically, there's the first great awakening, second great awakening, and I, and I see this happening too, but it seems to me like people in the church are saying, why didn't you ever tell me this before? I've never heard this, and yet their hearts are just, you know, crying out, yes, yes. So tell me about where and how you see this moving through the body of Christ, especially in the West. Well, first, uh, great awakenings, and I think this is this is more of a revolution back to the early church. But great awakenings happen when certain things come together. One is a growing despair in the hearts of the people of God. They are working the program. They are faithful. They tried hard, and it's not working. And they don't know what to do, and they're despairing. And as that grows uh, in, in our Western culture, and it is. Meaninglessness is killing us all, especially our, our younger, younger generations. Um, the second thing that happens simultaneously is that the Lord raises up prophets, men and women, who recover the apostolic vision of Jesus Christ and his Father and the Holy Spirit. 
So when you have despair and you have the recovery of the, of the authentic message, that creates a conversation that explodes with light. And um, I had uh, I coached Little League Baseball long ago when my son was at that age, and we had a guy on our team that was really good. He, he batted clean up, and, um, but he got into a slump, and I was trying to help him, and he simply would not listen to a single thing that I said. And so one night he struck out three times, and if he would have hit, gotten a hit on the last time, it, we, we would have won the game. He struck out. So he comes to the dugout crying his eyes out. He says, Coach Kruger, Coach Kruger. He says, I don't understand. I don't understand. And I said, I said, son, I said, bring, let your dad, mom and dad bring you over here to the, to the uh, playing field tomorrow afternoon at 5.15 after they get off work. And I said, in 15 minutes, I'll have you knocking it over the fence. I guarantee it. And the, he did. And in 15 minutes, he was slapping it again. But what I saw, what I learned in that interchange was I didn't tell him anything when he got there the second, that afternoon that I hadn't been telling him for three weeks. But the difference is his ears grew. And as long as we're working a program that we think is doing what it's supposed to be doing, we're not listening. But when we crater and crash as a culture and meaningless sets, sets up shop in our souls and we can't deal with the despair – and the frustration, although we have everything that we thought we needed to be uh, alive, that changes our ears. And God has already raised up the prophets, and they're already preaching, and people's ears are getting really big, and it is magnificent. And it's not just in the West, it's global. Uh, it's, glo it's everywhere, in every country right now, and it's largely under the religious radar. Yeah, it very much seems that way um, in, in, in pockets and places outside of where people can just slap labels on it and say, you know, that's not the right doctrine. My, my final thing I'm just curious about, because I, I read something and I wrote this down in the side of the page. When you're talking about the incarnation, you said that ascension means the incarnation is not over. And, and for a long time, I know there's a church feast of the ascension, but it's always seemed like an irrelevant thing. And when I read that sentence, that it's a continuation or that the incarnation's not over, can you comment on that? And that's the heart of everything. What, what, what benefit is it if Jesus comes here, becomes what we are, lives his life, and then takes off the robe of his humanity? If the, if the end game is that we can know the Father and the Holy Spirit, then Jesus continues on as a human being, experiences the Father and the Holy Spirit as a human being, so it can reach us. And what did Stephen see when he was being stoned to death in Acts seven? He saw. I'm not pulling that one up. He saw. He saw. This is fascinating. Acts seven. I'll, I'll read it to you. In John fourteen twenty, Jesus prophesies to the disciples. He says, and this is the, the most important verse in the, in the whole New Testament to me. But uh, he prophesies in John fourteen twenty. He says, "In that day, the day of the Spirit, you shall know that I am in my Father." You are in me, and I am in you. Now, let me, let me read Acts 7. Stephen is being stoned to death. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, and this is what the Holy Spirit does, fulfilling Jesus' prophecy, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. It's actually standing out of the right hand side of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he he was the first person to see the first part of Jesus' prophecy. And that day you will know that I 
Jesus, the incarnate Son, am in the Father. And the good news is he has us and the whole world with him. And he sent the Spirit to educate us, to bring us to see and to know so that we can experience this together. That's the real Bible, real, the real mission of the church and the real gospel. And Stephen saw it when he was being stoned in the Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit does for us. The Holy Spirit gives us eyes to see and encounter Jesus inside of our own souls. It is beautiful. Baxter, I wish we could uh, continue to talk, and I hope that you can come back and do another interview for our program in the future. Uh, but thank you so much. This is um, so enlivening to my heart, and I'm eager to share your wisdom with our listeners. Thank you. Yeah, tell them about our website, because it's like 350, 400 hours of teaching and all kinds of stuff on it. So. Perichoresis.org. Talk about perichoresis for a minute. Okay, so this is this is like at the end of Ferris Bueller, the movie, where you you look at all the credits, and then Matthew Broderick pops out and says, what are you still doing here? So tell them about perichoresis, the word and your organization. Well, the word is um, once once Jesus says in John's gospel that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, I am the Father of one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Once he says that, then the the um, it, it's now on for us to figure out how do we talk about that inness and that oneness of Jesus and the Father without collapsing them mm. so that they become the same person. And so as that develops in, in uh, church history, all the way through Nicaea and afterwards, they're still searching for a single word that can say uh, the Father and Son dwell in one another completely, yet without losing their own distinct uh, personhood. Then they discovered the word perichoresis. The proper pronunciation is perichoresis, but when you put an E in any word, it's, it's going to be pronounced that here, in, especially in the South. So I don't. Even, I gave up about that a long time ago. But so it it is. It's a one word summary of the Trinity. It means to dwell in one another without losing yourself in the process. It also means to make room inside of your own heart, as it were, for the other, to create space. Um, and and so it's my favorite theological word from the very beginning. I loved it. And when we started our ministry, I said, we're going to name it that. And everybody said, you're crazy. Nobody understands what that is. They're going to think this, this, and this. And I said, well, they don't know what an oncologist is either until they need one. <laughs> it is my mission to make that word a household name once again. And so our website, we have uh, probably 400 hours of teaching now. and we, You can get all my books in PDF format, and uh, there's lots and lots of stuff there. But um, we are determined to make that the center, that website the center of all things Trinitarian. And we're setting it up now so that people from all over the world can contribute uh, sermons, Bible studies, word studies, uh, book reviews, uh, essays, um, things like that from all over the world, so that and people can begin to connect. Because uh, I have I have friends all over the world, and they're like, "Do you know anybody in Switzerland? Do you know anybody in uh, Germany? Do you know anybody in in Michigan?" So we want to have a place where people can can come and and become a member, so that they can begin to crisscrossing conversation, like I said, because it's going on all over the earth. And it's paracrisis dot org, which I will put on the website when we publish this. You can just Google C Baxter Kruger, not Baxter Kruger. My son goes by that. He's he's forever saying, Dad, Facebook, I'm not on, well, I'm on Facebook, but I don't do it. But he's always saying, Dad, I, I get friend requests every day, and I put a note up that says, I am not Dr. C. Baxter Kruger. I am his son. And they still <laughs> <obviously>. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, Michael, it's been a, a real privilege to be with you today, and I look forward to uh, further friendship, further revelation, and um, and you need to know that pe- men like me, and uh, we have your back. Because this, this can get difficult at times, and I just want you to know that. Oh, I received that. Bless you. Thank you for that. Indeed, brother. You've been listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick, produced by Brian Beatty and supported by generous listeners like you. To learn more about our life-changing intensive counseling process for couples and individuals, visit RestoringTheSoul.com.